Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad you're able to gather together with your church family and worship Jesus. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, if it's your first time today, we've got a tent. You won't get wet. If you, there's a tent outside, uh, we'd love to give you a gift and just thank you for being with us today. And if you're joining us online, if you just write in the comments, I'm new, uh, then we would love to connect you and uh, be able to give you a gift uh, for joining us online today. So thank you so much for that. Today, we're wrapping up our series called Love Is. This is the last message. This is a drive it home. How do we apply this? We don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word kind of message. And so I'm going to pray for us uh, that God would apply the things that we've learned through this whole series in each of our hearts and it would make a difference in our city. So let me pray. Father, um, just like I was saying, your word back to you. Uh, We want to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Will you reveal to us things about ourselves today as we open up your your scriptures? You say that your word is like a mirror and uh, we reflect back to us things about ourselves. Will you reflect to us things about yourself and your glory? Father, I pray that your glory would be made known through our lives as a result of the things that we hear, the way that you transform us, the way you change us. I pray if there's anybody who hears these words today who doesn't know your son, Jesus, as Savior yet, you'd convict their hearts of their sin and convert them to you. And I pray for those of us who do know you, will you you encourage us, challenge us, show us things we didn't know, help us to grow, fan the flame in our hearts so that we would be passionate followers of yours and we make a difference while our lives are being lived here on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, how many of you here have ever raised money before? When you first hear that, you might think to yourself, I'm not really a fundraiser. Do you remember when you were a kid and they had you sell things for your school or for your team or maybe you were in the scouts or something like that? I think right now they sell coupon books. That's kind of the thing that I've seen. It's like pay 25 bucks for a coupon book, save $25,000 if you shop at every place that's ever existed in the triangle. And so you might remember those. I remember when I was a kid, it was magazines. (laughs) Some of you might not even know what those are anymore. This, listen, young people, I'm so old. If you're wondering, like you're looking up there going, how old is that guy? I'm so old. They didn't even have social media when I was a kid. And so think about how distressing that was. Like you had to buy a magazine to find out if your favorite celebrity ate a cheeseburger, but that would have been like a month ago. Finding out in real time, that wasn't even an option. Like how did we even make it? I have no idea. But I remember there was some marketer somewhere that thought to themselves, we got a bunch of junk. We need to sell it. I know what we'll do. We'll get a bunch of cute kids on porches all across America. And the way that we'll motivate them is we'll give them junk if they sell our junk. And I remember, I was about third, fourth grade, uh, they gave these magazines out and they said, if you sell this amount of stuff, here's the prizes you can win. And I went through the whole magazine to set my goal, decide what I was gonna win, and they had a boom box. Remember a boom box? Anybody know what that is? A couple of you are acknowledging children of the 80s. You know what I'm talking about? We didn't have AirPods. We didn't have the big headphones. If you were really cool, you carried your stereo on your shoulder, pumping the beats, you know, run DMC. All right, there we go. And so I was pumped. I was excited. I saw this thing in this magazine, and I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm dedicating my time. I'm going to get this. This is the goal. This is what I'm going for. And I could just envision how cool I would be if I sold enough to get the boom box. I'm going to carry a piece of cardboard around with me, throw it down on the ground, do some backspins, had my mullet, pegged pants. Y'all think you invented skinny jeans? You didn't invent skinny jeans. They're just pegged pants. They're just made that way from the beginning. We used to have to fold ours up and make them that way. And so I had the 80s thing all going, and I was excited. And so for the next couple months, you know, manipulate all my grandparents, try to get the neighbors, anybody my parents worked with, make them feel guilty, try to get them to buy these magazines they didn't need. I didn't care. I just wanted the boombox. 
Sold enough magazines to get the boombox. Prize day came. I'm sitting in class. I thought everybody's going to think I'm so cool. This is going to be amazing when they deliver this to my desk. And when they bring the box, I, I was a little confused. I thought, it's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. It's a real small box. And, and I opened the box up, and it's got this little metal band on it. And I pulled it out, and it was about a four-inch wide by about three-inch tall boom box. That is not what I envisioned. I didn't read the small print of the dimensions. You know, it's not quite the same. All the songs sound like Mickey Mouse coming out of that thing. And I was disappointed. You ever set a goal, reach the goal, and then you're disappointed? But you met the goal. Climb a mountain, you get to the top, it's like, there's just more rocks. We're just higher. <laughs> or climb the ladder, or build a business, or raise your family. And you're like, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And so many of us, we spend time, like in college or when you're in high school or sometimes even partway through life and going, what do I do? But sometimes we don't ask ourselves the question, does it matter? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in fact, that you can do lots of things with your life, but if, if you don't build on the rock of Jesus Christ, if they're not eternal things, then on the day of judgment, they're not going to pass through the fire. They're not going to be like gold or, or precious stones. They're going to be like wood, hay, and stubble, and they won't matter. They won't last. And if you look around the world, you'll see there's a lot of people that are doing things that just don't matter. I looked this week, just a quick Google search of what do people dedicate their lives to? And I found some interesting ones. I found one guy, you can look him up, his name is Brian Henderson. Some of you are grammar police. I know this, you've emailed me. <laughs> Doesn't social media drive you nuts if you're grammar police? People typing with their thumbs, no commas, no apostrophes, it's amazing. Well, this guy's a grammar police, but he is committed to Wikipedia. And his whole life mission is he corrects one specific mistake on Wikipedia over and over again. He's bothered by the misuse of the words comprised of. He's made tens of thousands of corrections on Wikipedia going through there every time somebody misuses and re-editing. But here's the fun part to me, and maybe it's just because I'm a sinner. There's a guy who trolls him and goes behind him, and every time he fixes it, he undoes it. <laughs> um, but is Brian Henderson, though, one day going to stand before God and be like, didn't you see all the grammar I corrected? Or there's another guy that I saw, his whole goal is that he's dedicated his life to collecting all of the VHS tapes of the movie Speed. I think we have a picture here of this gentleman. There he is. That's a movie starring Keanu Reeves, okay? Like if you're going to pick a movie, anyway, different, different subject, get a sidetrack. But one day he's going to, didn't you see all the videos? Didn't you see all I had? And we, can, we could say some of these things, grammar correction is ridiculous, or collecting VHS tapes is ridiculous, or baseball cards, or Pokemon cards, or whatever different things you want to do. But then you start laying our lives down and going, does what I do matter? And so I make it through the week, and I do these things, and I accomplish these tasks, and I hit these sales goals, or I take care of these people, or I do this thing, or the kids become good citizens. Does it matter? If you've been around church very long, you know why we were created. We were created for the glory of God. But how do we do that? Today our passage tells us the way we do that is by perfecting love. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to talk about love perfected. That's what I've titled today's message, Love Perfected. If you've got your Bibles, please join me in 1 John chapter 4. What's happening in 1 John is that John's actually writing to a group of people that have some false teaching in the church. Some of the false teaching is that there are people there that look like Christians, but they're not really Christians. Can you even imagine? <laughs> the false teaching has come in that some people have looked around at the world and realized that there's evil in the world and have decided that God couldn't possibly be responsible for that evil. And so everything that's physical is not actually from God. So oftentimes what happens with false teaching is there's enough truth in it 
that it leads us astray, but there's enough twisted in it that it leads us to destruction. And so what happens is we start thinking things that are not right. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. That's what happened with these people. And so they would adopt statements like this. Can you even fathom? They would say things like, well, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. I can't be held accountable for that because it's physical and the physical is evil. And so it's just a spiritual, and I'm a spiritual person. Or I was born this way, so ultimately your sin is God's fault is what you're saying. Yep, that's what they would say. They wouldn't say that last statement because they haven't thought through it, but that's what they're implying. Well, God's forgiven. God's forgiven. He forgives things, and so we're just, just cool. Just relax. And John writes to correct that kind of thinking because he knows what happens is it leads to a bunch of people being in a church that think they're Christians that aren't really Christians. And John's a, a pretty straight shooter. He might have been a Yankee. I don't know. Some of the stuff he says is kind of abrasive. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make him, talking about God, a liar, and his word's not in us. 1 John chapter 2, go to the next chapter. Whoever says, I know him, talking about God, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 2, a little, few verses later, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world or the love of the Father is not in him. It's pretty point blank. And the chapter we're going to look at is chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the third time he's talked about the topic of love. And look what he says about it. 1 John chapter 4, we'll read verses 7 through 18. You could keep going, but for the sake of time, we'll go through verse 18. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So there's the foundation. In this, the love of God is made manifest, here's the demonstration, among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me just pause there. Propitiation, it's a big word. It means this. It's appeasing God's wrath. It's talking about what happened at the cross of Christ, that, that God is just and he is righteous. And we talk about his love and we talk about his grace, but the way that those things can happen, the way his justice and his mercy come together is the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus at the cross was absorbing the wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sins. That's the propitiation. He's appeasing the wrath there. So what took place is that ultimate transaction that you could receive grace and mercy from a just and wrathful and righteous God because of what happened at the cross. That's what that word means, propitiation. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, if we've received this kind of love, then that's the same kind of love that we should demonstrate. Verse 12, and this is where we'll focus today. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is, and this is the first time we see it in this passage, perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. There it is again. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And here we see perfected again. By this is love perfected with us. So that, here's the reason, we may have confidence for the day of judgment, the day when things are burned up like wood, hay, and stubble, or, or stand the test like gold. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
And so here, if we keep reading, if you, if you start reading in chapter 4 at verse 7, and you read all the way through chapter 5 and verse 4, you see the word love 32 different times. So I think we're safe in saying this passage is about love. But there's a unique spot in there that you see multiple times where love is specifically called perfect love. Did you see that? If you go back and you look, it's in verse 12 and verse 15, two times in verse 18, this idea of perfect love. And before we unpack that, I've got to tell you what that is not, because some of our ears hear something, especially in a culture that values education. We think perfect means you got 100%. Or if we were in a mining culture, we think perfect is like when you refine the gold so all the impurities are gone. It means without error. That's not what perfect means here. That is not what perfect means here. In fact, some of you might have the New International Version, and it doesn't use the word perfect to translate this word. It uses the word completed. Here's why. Because there, what per- the word perfect means is a goal that's been achieved. That God has a goal in His love in your life, and it's not just so that you'll know that you're loved. The goal is made perfect when the love that He's demonstrated to you is then given through you into the lives of other people. That's when love is perfected, when the love that's been given to you is then shared with other people. The sacrificial love, the unlimited love, the unconditional love, the undeserved love, the costly love, the personal love that we've been talking about through this whole series, that when the love that you've experienced, you then give, that's when love has reached its goal. It's demonstrated. So how does that happen? Our first point, simply this, you must abide in Christ. I think it's really interesting. The passage doesn't go through a list of things we're supposed to do. Instead, it tells us who we are and who we're supposed to be. He starts off in verse 7, just follow the flow of the passage. Beloved, and he says, let us love one another. And so that's ultimately what this is going to be about. But then he lays the foundation. Why is that? It's because of God's character. Look at the end of verse 8. God is love. There's our foundation. And remember, we talked about in the first week, we were in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the reason why that we can love others is because that God's loved us. We didn't deserve this love. It's unlimited love. It's personal love. It's costly love. And where did it come from? It came from His character. God's eternal. He's infinite. He's always been in love with Himself. In Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in a love relationship. At the gospel, you're invited into that relationship. God is love. That's the foundation. What's the demonstration? The demonstration in the next couple of verses where we stopped and talked about propitiation. That's the gospel. It's the cross. The foundation is God's character. The demonstration is the cross. The application is your life. And that's verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me again. No one's ever seen God. If, so it could not happen, it's a hypothetical, if, conditional possible, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected, it meets its goal in us. See, God's goal for your life is that you would glorify him. The way that you do that is by reflecting this love to other people. The Bible's really clear. Maybe some of you are newer to church and you haven't heard that, that you were created for His glory. This might be new information to you. Just so you know, I'm not making it up. Let me share a couple other verses. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who's called by His name, whom I created for my… So you were created for His glory. It's Old Testament. Here's a New Testament verse. So you have one from both. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything he created was created for his glory. Remember when Jesus is on his way in to Jerusalem and he says, if they don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. All of creation, everything was made for his glory. Here's the problem. We try to steal his glory. We're glory thieves. It's happened all throughout the Bible. 
from the very beginning in Genesis. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, it's not because the fruit was super shiny. It was the promise that it held. You'll be like God. You keep reading through Genesis, and you come to Genesis chapter 11. There's this story that's oftentimes referred to as the Tower of Babel, where God scattered everybody and changed their languages so they couldn't all work together. What was happening is they were very... uh, they were very intuitive. They were very smart, and they were working together, and they were going to build a tower all the way to heaven. But do you, if you read the story closely, it tells you why. To build a name for ourselves. They're glory thieves. Glory thieving has been happening since the beginning of time. That we're stealing God's glory. We all do it. Pastors do it. Instead of trying to build God's kingdom, trying to build our own kingdom. Professors do it, teachers do it, nurses do it, doctors do it, parents do it, everybody, lawyers do it, janitors do it, everybody does it, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's with your friends, we're all constantly, I need credit, we're trying to steal his glory, we're glory thieves, we're glory hounds, but here's the reality, what those first several verses are teaching in this passage, verses 7 through 11, is that God rescues glory hounds from themselves. It's like my friend Paul goes to our church, Paul grew up in a Christian home. His dad was in ministry. He was going to high school at a Christian school playing basketball. And then you might ask yourself the question, how a few years later does he end up behind a mall in Atlanta in a red truck with nine FBI agents pointing guns into the car, telling him to get on the ground? I'll tell you how. He robbed a bank. How does a guy who's a Christian school kid, how does he get to a place where he robs a bank? One of the thrust of this passage is going to teach us today is this, that if we're not growing in greater dependence upon Jesus, then at best we're being distracted. Most likely we're being deceived, and deception leads to destruction. What happened in Paul's life is that he came home from college. He had preached a message to his church as one of the, you know, kind of the starred, loving Jesus kids in high school. He preached a message to his whole church about how you can be so close to being all in for God, but then being so far away. Went away to his first year of college on scholarship at this Christian school, came back, met a girl. It got physical. She got pregnant. Even though people warned them not to, they got married. The marriage was terrible. He cheated on her. They got a divorce. Then with another girl, he started making other bad decisions, and there was more deception, and deception breeds more deception, and eventually leads to destruction, and he continued to make bad decisions. Eventually, they started a prostitution ring. We call it an escort service. You want to clean it up for the kids. They did that in Atlanta, also did it in Denver, and with prostitution also came drugs, and so he started selling drugs. One of the drug deals went bad. They were on the run from the police, and so they were spending a lot of money, but everything was cash. When the cash dried up, they needed to figure out a way to make more cash, and so he robbed a bank. So you see how one decision leads to another decision to another decision, and then he ends up with one of his best friends telling him to get in this truck in the back of North Lake Mall in Atlanta, and he locks him in the truck, and these FBI agents come out, tell him to get on the ground. He gets arrested. When he realized he was about to go to jail, he took 100 Tylenol, tried to take his life. And by God's grace, miraculously, he didn't die. And God gave him a Christian nurse that continued to tell him truth through that process. And then when the doctor said that he was going to make it, his mom came into the room and said, Paul, God is not done with you. Now, he was going to jail for a long time. And the weight of that hit him. And that's when God grabbed him. Gave him a verse of Scripture. It's from Job chapter 23 and verse 10 as he knew he was about to go to jail. Job says this, He knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And Paul says, I said, when did you, when did you turn your life over to God? He said, it was the day before my trial. 
and it hit me. The weight of the lives that I had ruined, the weight of my sin, and I confessed my sin to God, and I turned back to Him. You know what happened to that moment? He was caught, not by FBI agents outside of that red truck, by the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, who do whatever it takes to come and rescue you, who left heaven and came to earth to seek and save that which was lost. Even the people that are in the church, they, they could preach a sermon, but haven't surrendered their hearts to Him, and He's coming after you. He's coming after glory hounds, and He rescues you. But what happens once He rescues you? And maybe your story's different than Paul's, and you didn't get arrested by the police, but God's love came to your life, changed your life. Now what? What happens now? You remain. You've been rescued, now remain, remain, remain in His love. That's what the word abide means. There's several words that are repeated multiple times through this passage. Did you notice the word abide is repeated? In just verses 12 through 16, you see the word abide six different times. Look back at the passage. It says, if we love God, God abides in us. That's verse 12. Jump down to verse 15. God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. What does it mean to abide? Abide means to remain. In fact, it's a command that's given. John's just sharing here with us, teaching that Jesus gave directly to him. In John chapter 15, it's just after the Last Supper. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, all of them, Peter and Judas and John. And now they're walking through a garden. In fact, some of you have traveled to Israel with me, and you've been through this garden, and there's vines there, and Jesus gives an analogy, and what he says to them is that I'm the vine, you're the branches, and here's the whole point. You've got to stay connected to me. And in that passage, he uses the word abide over and over again. In fact, he gives the command that you, have to, you must abide. It's a commandment to us as followers of Jesus to abide. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 11, and he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you might read that and be like, well, when I wasn't a Christian, I did lots of things. No, you can do nothing that will last to the fire of judgment day, nothing that actually matters. You can be incredibly busy. In fact, there's a warning in this passage. We talk about deception. There's a warning in this passage. If you read, have you, you should go back and read this week. We don't have time to read through the whole thing. John chapter 13 through John chapter 15. It's crazy. I was reading it this morning. There's a guy there named Judas. If you don't know Judas, there's a reason you didn't name your kids Judas, okay? He's not well thought of, all right? Judas betrays Jesus, but he's with the disciples all the time. In fact, he goes on, he does miracles in Jesus' name. And he's so trusted by the disciples that he keeps track of all the money. A lot of times we just give Judas a hard time because we know the end of the story, but try to read the story sometimes without knowing the end. Like, just, just try to come to it. Like, I've never read this before. Who's this Judas guy? And you read the story, and then Jesus, Jesus washes Judas' feet, and then they have this meal together, and at the meal, he's telling them, one of you is going to betray me, and the disciples say, who is it? And then he tells John, well, Peter tells John, lean in and ask him who it's going to be. He says, it's the one whom I dip this bread and then give it to that person. And he dips the bread and he hands it to Judas and they leave. And then John says, no one there knew that it was going to be Judas. Wait, Jesus just said the guy I give the bread to, he gave the bread. And you could be like, the disciples are so dumb. But why wouldn't they know this? Like ask yourself that question. And the only conclusion I can come to is Judas is the last person they thought would betray Jesus. That they trusted him so much, they thought, well, it's not him. It's not, surely it's not him. And Judas is a warning to all of us. 
It's possible to be close to Jesus, to be busy for Jesus, to be associated with Jesus, and not be connected to Jesus. All the church should take that warning. And so here, after Judas leaves, he says, any branch, he goes, he goes on, and we don't get into it because he's like, are those people going to hell? I'm not going to hell. I'm not trying to unpack all of John chapter 15. But there's probably some branches off to the side that aren't connected to the vine. He goes, those branches are going to be burned up. In other words, they're not going to, through the day of judgment, nothing they've done is going to matter. But he says to them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. What he's saying is stay connected to me. But then if, if you got your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen. Look at verses 9 through 11 in John chapter 15. I think it's incredible how he ends these verses. In verse 9 he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There's the command. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So abiding means obeying, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he does only what the Father tells him to do. But look at verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, that, so here's the reason, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, fulfilled, reach its goal. Everybody here wants to be happy. That's a universal quest that we're all on for happiness. He says here that joy and happiness is the same word in the Bible, in spite of what you might have heard. They're the same thing. And here, what joy is, is in the midst of, think about the fear they're experiencing. Jesus is about to leave. He's telling one of them is going to betray him. He's going to be beaten and mocked and scourged and hung on a cross. And the guy that they left everything to follow is going to be dead in a few hours. And he says, I want you to have my joy. So he's talking about something here you can have in the midst of this world, regardless of what's happening all around you. You can have joy. How? Abide. Abide. How do I abide? I could tell you, like probably a lot of really good pastors would do, read your Bible and pray and serve, but it's really simple. Here's what you need to do. You need to enjoy God. Amen. Do you, here's a question that you have to answer for yourself. I cannot answer this for you in the sermon. Do you enjoy? I'm not asking if you believe. I'm not asking if you know. Do you enjoy God? Because what you enjoy, you pursue, either for your deception or for your delight. It's for delight if it grows you in greater dependence upon Jesus, because that's ultimately, that does matter. It's for deception if at best case it's a distraction, at worst case, it's like my friend Paul was headed down total destruction. And so, do you enjoy him? Because if you enjoy him, I don't need to tell you to read your Bible. I don't need to tell you to pray. I don't need to tell you to spend time with him. I don't need to tell you to serve. Because what you're going to do is you're going to be in a relationship with him. And then your life is going to grow you in dependence upon him. So if you want to know if you enjoy him, you're like, how do I evaluate that? Is the life you're living causing you greater dependence upon Jesus or not? Because if it's not by faith, it's not pleasing to him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And so that's how you know. And if that's happening, then the second part of this passage, the second part of verse 12 is happening. You must be willing to take risks to reveal God's love. You take risks to reveal God's love. Look at verse 12. Again with me, John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Hold on, pause for a second. Is that even true? Because we, we believe, in case you're new to this church, we do believe the Bible, but I'm about to question something in the Bible here and like wonder if the Bible, is the Bible full of contradictions? Because no one has ever seen God. Wait, John, have you not read the Old Testament? What about when Moses is in Exodus chapter 33 and he says, God, show me your glory, and God grants that request in Exodus chapter 34? Or what about in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is in the throne room of God and he's beholding, I saw the Lord, he says. I saw, he uses the line, I saw the Lord. Or how about John, you wrote a book. 
John. It's called John. And chapter 1 says, no one's seen God, but if you want to see God, look at Jesus. And wait a minute. This is chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, just flip back a page or two to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. says that we testify to you about that which we've seen. John, have you forgotten? You've forgotten what you wrote a couple of minutes ago, John. So what is he talking about here when he says that no one's seen God? Because we've got testimony after testimony in the Bible. The Bible is actually a book of revealing who God is. And you're saying you're only testif- only people that should be writing in the Bible are people that have actually seen these things. And, and so what's happening? I want to read to you what a guy a lot smarter than me uh, said about this. He's a Bible commentator. His name is Hybert or Hebert. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's smart. So listen to this. The verb used here is not that used in John chapter 1 and verse 18. And he gives the Greek verb which simply denotes the fact of having seen something. The verb here, thelatai, implies a careful observation or close scrutiny. It's where we get our word theater. Another commentator goes on and says, no man has seen God in his unveiled essence, glory, and majesty. In other words, the only way that anybody's ever been able to see God, so read that Exodus passage, Exodus chapter 33 and 34, is that God puts them in a cleft and he gives them a glimpse of his backside. You've gotten filtered glimpses, just little pictures, because otherwise you would die. And so the commentator goes on and says, he can, as he can be seen, it could certainly be our death if we saw him without a filter. It would be our death. But what God does is he chooses to reveal himself, give us glimpses of his glory, and the way that he's doing it at this time period in human history is through the church. That's what 1 John chapter 4 goes on to say. It says, no one has ever seen God. Okay, he's setting us up there. No one's ever seen God. Chapter 4, verse 12. But then look at the next part. If, here's how they can see. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The way they're going to see is through us. And that's what we read. Is that it's happened through the church. And here's the, here's the reality. This is God's plan. From now until Jesus comes back, that's the plan. You might disagree with it. You might think you have a better plan than God. You talk to him about that, okay? Don't send me any note. I don't need to hear about it. I used to think, when I first became a Christian, I thought, the church is messed up. Like, I'm just going to go there because God says I have to, but that can't be the plan. That's the plan. Not 20-some years later, here I am going, this is the plan. And so what you see is the church is supposed to take risks to reveal God's love. And so the early church did, Acts chapter 2. They're dedicated to the apostles' teaching, so they're studying the Bible together. They're caring for one another. They're being generous with one another, so much so that it's oozing out into the community, and God's adding to the number daily those who are being saved. And you read what happens in the, in the, in the, in the, all through the New Testament. Because these churches, as they're demonstrating love to the community, God's transforming people's lives. You read in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews writes, and he says that the people were taking risks. They were being persecuted for their faith. And he said, but you would go and visit them while they were in prison, knowing that that means you could lose your house. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, it says, For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully? It's like they were abiding in Christ. And their joy came from somewhere outside of this world. Because they'd give up everything in this world. Look at what he says next. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. In other words, they were willing to risk to reveal God's love. And how did it happen? Because they were abiding in Christ, and that was overflowing. The kind of love that was demonstrated to them, then they were demonstrating to others, and the people in the community were seeing that, and that's how they were seeing God. 
But something happened. Somewhere, somehow, we got comfortable, and we stopped taking risks. I don't know how many of you watched the Super Bowl this past week. How many of you watched Super Bowl commercials this past week? Watched Super Bowl, Super Bowl commercials, or some of the commercials, some of you? Most of the other 100 million people don't go to church, apparently. Uh, some of you don't want to admit. Some of you, no matter what I say, you wouldn't raise your hand in church. Totally understand. But did you see the Pringles commercial that happened? I remember when I was, back when I was trying to get a boom box, it was once you pop, you can't stop, was the Pringles uh, commercial then. But now they're talking about combining the Pringles all together. Have you seen that? And so they had a commercial where a space pod landed in the ocean, and they went back to the space center, and at the space center, they didn't even notice that the pod had landed in the ocean because they were putting together, I think it was like barbecue, pizza, and an original, and they're like, ah, barbecue, pizza, original, they're all dancing, they're having a party, and then this little space pod ends up landing out in the ocean. So these people are going, hey, we're here, where is everybody? And then the next scene of the commercial is there's a boat that's coming by. And it's been years, and the guys and the lady that were standing there before, they're, they're fishing, and the, the, their hair is more gray, and the guy literally says, we're saved, we're going home. And the boat's coming, and then they zoom inside the boat, and they're like, jalapenos and cheddar and original. Dang, 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 dang. Yeah, here we are. We're excited. And so the boat cruises right by, <laughs> and they don't even see him. And when I saw that commercial, I thought, that's like the church. We gather together, we'll talk about God's love, we'll study a book about God's love, we'll sing songs about God's love. In the meantime, there's a lost and dying world living in darkness that's in fear, that's divided. That no matter what they do, the best it can be is like a pile of dirty rags before God. We've got the answers, and we can talk about their statements and the things that they believe and how off they are, but if we don't do something, then we're just like those people inside the boat. Oh, that's awesome, God's love, oh, how he loves me, it's amazing. But we don't go out there to take that love out there? What a tragedy. And right here, what we're being told in 1 John chapter 4 is we've got to take risks. But, but, but we might be afraid. Well, he covers that too. He says the perfect love casts out fear. In fact, in, in verses 17 and 18, you see in verse 17, he's talking about judgment day and that we have nothing to fear on judgment day if we're abiding in his love. Because that love's been poured into our hearts. And so when we stand before God, we already know that we're going to be good before God. But the implication of that is that we, then sh we shouldn't have to fear man. We shouldn't have to fear anything that are the worldly fears of this life. We shouldn't have to fear worst case scenario. We shouldn't have to fear failure. We shouldn't have to fear any of those things. Because if we're abiding in his love and his love's flowing through us, then no matter what we're doing is going to stand the test on judgment day, you don't have to fear man. Now, if we should have any fear, we might need to have the, like, you talk about FOMO, we have the fear of missing out on living by faith. Like, what about the Israelites? They're going to go into the promised land, and they're too afraid to go. So God says, no, your kids will go, because you won't live by faith. We miss out. Now, God's going to accomplish his plan. He's going to accomplish his will. The question is, are you going to be a part of it? So he says here, I love verse 18. It says in 1 John chapter 4, this perfect love. What is perfect love? The love that loves perfectly without error? No, the love that we're experiencing. When we are receiving and abiding in his love and that love is flowing through us, that's what perfect love is. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected and love hasn't reached its goal in love. We talked last week about how God doesn't punish us. He'll discipline us, but it's not punishment. It's for restoration. Even when he brings difficult things in our lives to bring us back to him. It's not punishment. We don't have anything to fear. 
What we need to do is abide, and when we abide, it leads to abundance, and abundance is what He's promised us in John chapter 10. It's not just that you're, you know, what some churches tell you, your bank account will be full. No, it's the abundant life. It's the joy-filled life that He's talking about. John chapter 15 and verse 11, that, that you'd have my joy, and that your joy would be full. You want the thing that we all want, this happiness. He's telling us how to have it. We just don't necessarily want to do it the way that He wants us to do it. And he's telling us here, I'm giving you this love, this love. Like, think about having freedom in this love. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from this love. Not a pandemic, not a political argument, not a disease, not discipline. Like, nothing that can happen in your life is going to separate you from his love. You don't have any reason to fear, so live by faith. The way you live by faith, take risks for God to demonstrate this love in the community. And so what do we do? How do we do this? And so let me give you some application points today. Simply this, start off by praying. Pray. Ask God, God, will you show me what you want me to do? I read a story this week about Charles Spurgeon. Baptist pastors always talk about Charles Spurgeon because he was a Baptist and a big church. <laughs> he wasn't just a powerful preacher. What many people don't know about his life is the impact he had on the lives of orphans. And what happened to his church is that one, they were having a Monday night prayer meeting one time, and he didn't give a big lesson or a big message. He just got up and he said, why don't we just pray that God would show us what it is he wants us to do next? Their church is about 5,000 people at the time. He goes, we're a big church, and we're not making enough of a difference in this city. So let's just pray that God shows us. And if it requires money, that he'd provide the money. The next day, he got a call from a woman who said that she wanted to give, and this is in the 1800s, wanted to give $100,000. They bought two and a half acres right by the church in London, built an orphanage there that housed 250 girls, 250 boys, teaching them about Jesus and education and giving them love, putting skin on what love looks like. It's First John 4. They've never seen, oh, they saw God through those people. Pray. Why don't we pray? Why don't, why don't we dare us to pray? God, show us what you want us to do as a church. Show me what you want me to do individually. God can answer that. He's big enough to answer that prayer. What about this? What about this for a crazy idea? What about just being present with some people? We're so busy. We're so scattered. What about you want to demonstrate love? What about being present? My friend Paul, when he, the first time he shared his story with me a couple years ago, we were having lunch in Briar Creek, and he's telling me about the red truck and the FBI and all those things, and I've never been to prison, and so I was asking him, what was, what was it like in prison? He said, the first year and a half I was on lockdown. Lockdown meant you weren't allowed to come out of your cell 24 hours a day. But there was visitation. Some, sometimes throughout the week there'd be a visitation. He said, my mom visited me every time there was visitation just so that I could get out of my cell for a little bit of time. And he talked about how his mom was his rock through that process. And I just looked at him, I said, your mom was like, Jesus was skin on. She just came to, it wasn't about what they talked about. It wasn't about all the things she taught him from the Bible. It was about just being present. What about presence? What about prayer? How about this for an idea? What's your passion? God made you the way he made you for a reason. The things that bother you, bother you. The things that you enjoy, you enjoy. What about, what about your passions? What are your passions? I don't know if you've ever seen, but there is a strip club in Briar Creek. I don't know. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I'm a Christian. I don't see that. I don't know that. I get it. It's right by the airport. It's well lit if you're coming in an airplane ever, uh, right there. And uh, some people I know in our church are bothered by sex trafficking and different things that happen in the in pornography world. We've got this right in the heart of our community. Everybody who comes in and goes out is seeing this thing. I was talking to a pastor in Fayetteville about two months ago. He was telling me about how in his church a woman, 65-year-old woman, started a ministry to, to strippers. And they called it Ladies of Value. And what she would do is that she said, at first I was just praying for them, and I felt like God had said to me, okay, why are you just praying for them? Why don't you go and love them? 
And so what they do is they go to about 80 to 100 different strippers once a month. They make these care packages. They just put gum and just different items. And I can tell you the items if you want to do it. But different items they put in this bag. And then they go there. They talk to the owners ahead of time. At first, they had to convince the owners. We're not just trying to get them to quit their jobs. Uh, but they went in there. They go in there, and they give them these gift bags. They say, if you'd like us to pray for you, don't beat them over the head of the Bible. They say, if you'd like us to pray for you, we'd love to pray for you. And so they start praying for these girls. A woman said that the conversations are usually about relationships, sometimes abusive relationships, oftentimes custody battles for kids. But all those girls have dreams too. They want to go to school. They want different kinds of jobs. And uh, he, he gave me a text message that one of the girls had sent into the church. She said, I just want to reach out. I'm not sure if you guys remember me. I used to dance at Sparky Strip Club on Bragg Street. I remember every time you guys would come, we prayed together. I told you guys about my school and about my dreams to have my own business. And you ladies said, you'll continue to pray for me. You took my name. I'm just here to share my testimony. Prayers work. You guys helped me change my life. If you guys didn't come into Sparky's, I don't know where I'd be. I finished school. Now I have my own business. I'm getting married. And my fiance and I just gave our lives to Jesus. She goes on in here to talk about how she wants to come back and be part of the ministry that goes in and ministers to these women. That was because one lady in their church had a passion, followed the passion. What passion do you have? I'll tell you, as pastors, you know what, our job is not just to teach sermons, to pray, and to show up at bad times, but it's to fan the flames of those passions, to help you, to equip you, to be able to do those things. We'd love to talk with you, to help you with those things. If you've got a passion, let us know. We'd love to talk with you about that. How can you, how can you make that happen? We know of needs in our community. I challenged you guys a, a few weeks ago. They say, we talk about abortion, we talk about we're anti-abortion, that God's pro-life, we're pro-life. That's very clear in the Bible. That's not even like a gray area to discuss. But what do we do about it as a church? Because I'll tell you, the, the pro-choice people that I talk to, they're upset. They're like, you're not pro, pro-life, you're pro-birth. I said, we don't do anything after that. And I said, well, let me tell you what our church does, okay? And so here's some options, things you guys can get involved in in our church. Our church actually does come alongside through a ministry called Gateway, Women that are thinking about having abortions, talk to them about keeping their kids or having them, giving them up for adoptions. We work with a ministry called Safe Families that comes alongside of people that are fostering kids or going through difficult transition times to try to keep kids inside their homes. And so we can connect you with that. We've also got ministries for once those kids are born so you can get involved in those lives. Or you can be one of the families that adopts. We've got an orphan care ministry. If you're interested in any of those ministries, go to the Next Steps table after the service. If you're watching online, just say, can you connect me with what he just talked about? We would love to connect you because the way those ministries even function is dedicated volunteers that care. But you know what? We don't have to make it a program even. Those programs are awesome. But you'll see on your seats today, a little card that's there. It just says love in action. We put these out last week. They're here this week. And let me tell you what these are all about. These are for you to take. And we'll print as many. We'll print millions of these if we need to. These are for you to take and put them in your car. Put them in your cubicle at work. Put them wherever it is that you function, in your kitchen, on your refrigerator, wherever it is. And to remind you that love is not just this feeling we have with God, but it's put on display for us at the cross. It was in action. And we're supposed to put it on display for other people. That's how they see it. And so... The idea is that you take this card and you start giving it out around this community. Maybe you, and just some, well, I can give you, the, I, don't be limited by the ideas I share right now, but here's some ideas. Maybe you're going through the drive-thru, and as you're going through the drive-thru, you decide, I'm going to pay for the car behind me. You look and realize, oh, it's a minivan. they got like 30 kids in there. Whatever. God laid it on your heart. Be obedient. He'll provide the other money, all right? And so you buy the, the drive-thru, and then you just go to the drive-thru attendant. Hey, could you give them this card? Just tell them their meal's covered. 
And then they look at it, love and action, what is that? And it says on the back of it, what just happened? The person who gave you this card has experienced the life-changing love of Jesus, and they're passing it on to you. And there's a spot. If those people want to respond and tell us how that impacted their lives, they can do that. But here, don't be limited to the drive-thru, okay? Don't be narrowed down by that. Maybe God puts on your heart. And we've been seeing on the news all these hospitals full. There's kids in the hospital. What if you bought a bunch of coloring books? Stuff these cards. We'll print as many of these cards as we need to for you. Stuff these cards in the front. Send them all to the hospital so the kids would have something to do and they'd see that it was in the name of Jesus. Or, or what if you just go to the gas station and at the gas station you decide to tape up a $20 bill. On, you don't even know who's next. God knows. You tape up this card. There it is. And they go up and they're like, 20 bucks. This is a scam. Like they're looking around for some YouTuber or whatever and they pull out this card and they're like, the love of Jesus. You never know what kind of difference this kind of thing could make. Go into a store. Buy a gift card. Walk out. Hand it to the person on the way into the store. I don't care if it's Starbucks or wherever you're at. You're only limited by your own creativity on what to do with these cards. Make gift bags. You can hand them out to people that are asking for handouts on the side of the road. Put one of these cards inside. They'll know that the gifts there, the granola bars or whatever, the toothpaste, whatever use you give them is in the name of Jesus. Here's what this is for. Just to remind you that there are opportunities before you every day. And we're not supposed to be just hearers of the word, but doers. I'd love it if our city was saturated, not just with these cards, but with the love of Christ because of what God deserves in your heart, but you have to be abiding in him. Otherwise, you're just doing activity for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We're thankful. Thankful to be in a place where we've got lots of other people that love Jesus. We can just look around this room and see other people that love your, your son, Jesus, that you died for us. I pray if there are people in this room that maybe know those facts but haven't placed their faith in Jesus, that right now they'd go all in with your son, Jesus. I thank you for the way you redeem people like my friend Paul. I, I pray that everyone here would know there's no, no person that's so gone, no matter what, if they've got breath in their lungs, that you've got a plan for them, and you've got a plan for each one of us. Whether we, we'd be the type of person that no one would ever think would ever do anything wrong, or we're the type of person that would think they could never do anything right, you've got a plan for us, and you want to put your glory on display through us. Father, will you speak to us? Will you show us? Will you put a burden on our hearts, what it is you want us to do as a church next, individually next, how to walk by faith with you? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.